0: Today we're going to talk about a quite extraordinary topic, and it's a topic that I think will be unknown to most of you. In making a history podcast, you know, it's easy to do the same topics over and over again, like the French Revolution or the Roman Republic or something like that, and while I love those topics, I wanted to try something a little bit different this time around. Some might not even want to call this history, but more in the realms of science. But I would disagree, though. We're going to speak about an event that really affected thousands and thousands of people just like you and me. It might also have dramatically changed the trajectory of all of humankind. As you know, our planet is ever-changing. It's always happening something on planet Earth. It's sometimes easy to forget that it's actually a planet like so many other in the universe. And the event we're going to discuss today is how the Earth quite literally once flipped. Meaning that when North shifted to you know, perhaps around Mexico someplace, you had northern lights over Guatemala, the south vanished east somewhere, and you think I'm just talking gibberish now, but I'm not. We're going to talk about how something over 41,000 years ago greatly affected humankind Today, we are discussing the extraordinary event that is known as the Le Champ's Excursion. I'm speaking to you tonight. The before you think that I've gone completely insane, I just want to repeat that this is going to be a podcast episode about human history, not about scientific theory. So rest at ease. Um, But before we really start talking about humans at this time, I just need to explain this little bit wackiness in what I just said and this wackiness that is this so-called Le Champs excursion. Uh, So just that you understand the sort of basics where I'm coming from here. The first thing we need to understand is the difference between magnetic poles and geographic poles on our planet. Those are not the same. Geographic poles is uh, basically where the uh, the axis is that the earth is rotating around they are physically permanent places on our planet Uh, the south pole i think has a bit of a flag on it and the north pole well you can't put a flag on it basically because it's it's ice there and it's water underneath but this is a set place geographically it is not the same as the magnetic north and south pole. Because the magnetic north pole, just to use north as an example, it's actually ever-changing. When you are using a compass, the compass needle will react to the Earth's magnetism and point you towards the magnetic north. At the current time of recording, the magnetic north pole is quite far away from the geographic North Pole. It's actually somewhere far, far north in Canada. The magnetic North Pole is moving between 10 and 40 kilometers a year. So Earth is basically like a huge bar magnet with two opposite poles. So this is the one thing that we need to keep in mind. Secondly... What we're talking about here is something that in scientific lingo is called Geomagnetic Field Reversions. And they happen from time to time. And they sound almost, you know, crazy that something can can really happen. Uh, And just means that basically the magnetic poles are just going ballistic. They're just moving about much, much further than they should. So... The distance from the magnetic north Pole to the physical or the sort of geographical North Pole can be huge. and that is why we at this point in time, roughly 41 42 thousand years ago has this really really strange events and you get northern lights around the equator uh, and there's a lot of lot of other huge huge consequences also related to this that we will, Get into quite soon. what is interesting about this uh, that's called the Lachamps effect is that it happened like we said forty one to forty two thousand years ago, but it happened in a time where humans were really well developed and we are getting more and more research done both when it comes to, to humans and human history at this time, but also um, the sort of geomagnetic shifts. So, also a little bit of a caveat, there is so much going on in the fields of, of research and science in so many areas at the moment that the things are changing quite rapidly, just so you know. Uh, so there will definitely be more research coming here very soon. But... I'm not into this because of the sort of planetary strangeness of this. I'm into this because how it affects humans. So if we're going to talk about humans for a while and human history, I think we need to start by killing off the caveman myth. You know, if you think about people living 40, 50,000 years from now, I mean, we don't really have any idea of, of how those people lived, how they interacted, who they were. We basically tend to look at them as some sort of Stone Age brutes kind of thing. You know, you see in the movie One Night at the Museum, you know, you have this kind of Stone Age people there. When they come to life, they're just jumping around with rocks and clubs. That's basically how we tend to, to see people in what we sometimes call prehistory. I really hate the term prehistory because I think it speaks more about our ignorance more than anything else, to be honest. The reason why we call it prehistory is, I suppose, that we don't really know anything about this period or we used to know very little. You know, the fog of history is there for us and... You know, we've just been blind to what has happened. And why we are blind is basically because we don't have writing. When writing comes along, it's basically like somebody is turning on the historical light. And all of a sudden, we can see what people names were, what they were doing, what they were working with, and so forth. But of course, I mean, this didn't... You know all of a sudden, humans started being humans, bam once you once you sort of discover writing, I mean obviously, people coming right before that, you know were very similar to the people that that started writing. Writing, by the way, as you might know, it's roughly let's say five thousand years ago. Uh, we're talking about the civilizations around Mesopotamia. And or Egypt, depending on who you asked. That's where writing first emerged. Normally Sumeria, Sumeris is mentioned. Anyways, it's not like the people living, you know, four thousand BC were, you know, super stupid or that different from those that all of a sudden could write these super sophisticated things. I mean if you look at the clay tablets that you found in, in today's uh, Iraq, many of them haven't been completely deciphered yet by the way but if you look at them they will show you very very intelligent people that are not that different from ourselves they are quarreling they are trading um, and they are also uh, doing poetry a little bit later on or maybe they did before we don't know and basically there's so many things that we don't know and we just Create these myths for ourselves Because we don't really know We look at the, the old humans They're sort of dumb, stupid, simple Because we are kind of We don't know matters Maybe it's us that are kind of Stupid or simple So we need to get away from this caveman idea uh, Before we sort of Continue going further in this podcast And And there's so much going on here We'll get into it But I think there's a huge, huge scientific shift when it comes to, to, to history because there are new archaeological techniques that are all of a sudden just basically changing everything we thought we knew about this theory. In the last 10, 15 years, there has been so many, many changes. That I would dare say that if you pick up a history book 20 or 30 years old uh, and reading in that about Humankind for over six thousand years ago it wouldn 't be very useful. still, archaeology is quite quite difficult because I mean very little survive over the years, and for every year that passes, the chance that something will survive obviously diminishes. so I mean even the Viking area we will probably do a podcast about Vikings pretty pretty soon. But even in the Viking area just 1,000 years ago, which is, you know, quote-unquote recent, we actually don't have, you know, so many physical things that have just disappeared because they were made of wood or textile. If things are to survive over millennia, they need to be in stone or metal or glass or bone. Or something like that. So from certain civilizations, such as the Vikings, that used a lot of wood, all that has mostly gone. I think there are three preserved Viking ships out of thousands today. And that's probably all there is ever going to be. Because, you know, wood disappears. And talking about archaeological finds, there is actually one in particular that made me want to do this episode and it is a small object it was posted on twitter by archaeologist Nina Velberger i i urge you to follow her because she's fantastic but it is a, a sculpture of a tiny tiny horse and if you look at it it's just amazing and then you look at the date and it blows your mind because it's made 40, 41,000 years ago. It's made during the same time period that we're talking about. It's made during the time period of the Lachance effect slash Lachamps excursion. And it's just mind-blowing because it's so obvious that it's not a caveman, quote-unquote, that has made this. It's a human like me and you. And, you know, I wouldn't be able to to make it... If if somebody hold a gun to my head, not in a thousand years, well, you know, pun kind of intended, but you know, it's just it's just really ob- really obvious that this was made by by an artist living that that long ago. And by the way, we, when I say La Champs effect, uh, the reason for this event getting this name is basically just that La Champs is a, is a place in France. I'm probably also pronouncing it wrong, which is, you know, typical, but uh, they, this is where they first found evidence of this effect. So that's why we're calling it La Champs effect, just so you know. So if we look at human evolution as a whole, it's a story that lasts for about 700,000 years and It obviously has many different stages, you will all have seen this sort of uh, step-by-step improvement from the sort of monkey-like figures towards the modern human, Um, and also in this period, fire plays a hugely important role in human evolution, uh, because fire, when humans or, uh, you know, early humans managed to master fire, it was... Both a weapon for them, but it was also maybe more importantly a way for them to cook food and make more kinds of foods eatable. Like for example, I think chimpanzees still use about five hours or something to to chew and process raw meat. But when you can fry that meat, it takes you an hour or so. So it's a much more efficient way to get nutrition. There is an international bestseller you might have read. It's called *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari, and um, it's a really great way to to learn more about this sort of early period in a really easy way. Uh, and there's so much also being discovered, of course. So we have to remember that there there will be new discoveries also after this this podcast. But when we come to the Homo sapiens, our species. Uh, about we have reached the time that is you know it's about hundred and fifty thousand years ago, and the Homo sapiens they come in Africa. They are from Africa, so so in that sense we're all from Africa. And the uh, you know, Homo sapiens they walk around, they burn down forests a little bit, you know, kill kill prey. But around seventy thousand years ago, uh, there is a bit of a shift. They start to get more intelligent, and um, basically they end up already at this stage being more or less exactly like you and me. Like, you couldn't separate one from another if you put one in a morgue next to more than humans. That would be impossible. Also, likely, if you had adopted a kid, homo sapiens kid from 70,000 years ago, or an infant at least, that's child would grow up with you know more or less the exact same sort of um, possibilities like you and me like this this child would be able to operate a smartphone speak our language and so forth and and had we gone back then we would be able to to learn and speak their language most likely so we're talking about from this point on we're talking about very very intelligent human beings And we're talking about Homo sapiens and of course we also need to mention Neanderthals because actually Neanderthals are a crucial part of this episode's narrative. So let's just talk a little bit about the Neanderthals and who they were compared to the Homo sapiens. So basically the Homo sapiens, they came from Africa, the Neanderthals they stayed in Europe and Asia. They were you know, on average, a little bit shorter than the sapiens. Uh, they were more muscular. They had equally uh, sized brains, perhaps a little bit larger. Um, and for all we know, and we don't know much, but for all we know, they most likely had uh, their own languages. And I think the the trend scientifically now is to view them, you know, more and more like a human species, on you know on par with Homo sapiens, and not sort of this inferior caveman stereotype. But again, there's a lot we don't know. We do know for quite certain that they had clothes that they that they used animal skins and 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 such for clothing. Uh, they obviously had tools, quite advanced tools. They buried their dead. Uh, there are certain signs that they might have had uh, forms of religion, but we don't know. It's really high, like we said, because we're talking about, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. Very, very little, of course, survives, and you need to be, you know, really know what you're doing uh, in order to, to make discoveries. But uh, Neanderthal studies, if we can call it that, still has you know, really, really changed uh, a lot over the last few years. It was a bit of a bombshell, actually, because you managed to sort of break down the genome of the Neanderthals. And uh, before they did, there had been this sort of theory, or been several theories, because, you know, what happened to the Neanderthals? Why did they go away? Well, somebody talks about the Homo sapiens killing them. uh, Some talk about them... Just basically blending in with the sapiens that they never really died out. Some would say that there are environmental uh, disasters or reasons for them uh, dying out. We don't know, but they did interbreed a little bit, which is not ideal. Which might also uh, point towards that there might not have been that many other Neanderthals for them to to mate with uh, and get children with. Um, we we don't know, but then we had this breakthrough. I think it was in 2010 when you basically managed to 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 find this Neanderthal DNA, and boom, all people actually, at least outside of Africa, do have some Neanderthal DNA in them. Um, what is said is between one and four uh, percent of Neanderthal DNA. Is in most people, at least not from Africa, um, that was uh, that was um, exposed after the genome was cracked. So me, being a blonde, blue-eyed guy from Northern Europe, you know, quite a well, probably quite a bit of Neanderthal DNA in me. Also, when we talk about this, you know, I know this can get a little bit controversial. So please don't misinterpret anything that I'm I'm saying. I'm just quoting the. Uh, the recent findings that none of these should in any ways be used in sort of any sort of racial or discriminatory way just to have said that um but it's it's really really interesting what happens to the Neanderthals they might have had brighter skin and lighter hair than the homo sapiens from africa we we don't know there's so much we don't know And a funny, actually funny little bit of detail with the Neanderthals is that they did some research on their voice boxes, and they um, scientists uh, think that you know they did not have the same vocal range at all as the Homo sapiens did, uh, but they have uh, had a vocal range big enough to have. Uh, just as sophisticated languages but what is funny is that because of the positioning of those voice boxes that meant that these rather short clumpy muscular figures would have really bright voices so just imagine they sort of really beefed little short guys just talking to you like this and just it cracks me up a little bit anyway. So you have this discovery that we have Neanderthal DNA in us and And this would, of course, support the theory of interbreeding because since we have Neanderthal DNA, that means you know there has been crossbreeding, there has been offspring made between sapiens and Neanderthals, and more importantly, their offspring are also capable of producing more offspring, which is not. Always the case when you know you have different races mating. For example, you you know, horses and donkeys can have babies, but the babies can't get babies themselves. So basically Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are much more alike, or more alike, it seems, than horses and donkeys. So this is a little bit of the big Wow! thing that happened. There are other things also, by the way, I should mention when we're talking about uh, the different human races, because at this time we can really talk about human races. I'm not sure we can even talk about human races today, to be honest. But back then you had Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, you know, quite distinct different human races. You also have some uh, something called Denisovans. And um, basically we don't know too much about these these people, either. They might have lived, you know, roughly around the same time. And, um, but what is also interesting to see is that managing also to look into uh, the genome of these people with the same scientific methods also show that a lot of people from, especially Southeastern Asia, have a lot of Denisohn DNA in them. And it's just really, really fascinating because that means that they also interbred with with homo sapiens and speaking about this dna and like i said don't get it too caught up in this like what is best or not best because we're all we're all humans in the end but um, there are some positives and some negatives uh, having these various dna factors for example in the covid pandemic the uh, they found that some sort of neanderthal dna gave better protection, but you know yet then again I just as recently as uh, this day of recording read another article that uh, some sort of uh, Neanderthal DNA was negative when it came to reacting positively to certain medications. So you know we're all a little bit of this or a little bit of that. What I think is also particularly interesting, just on this note, and I digress a little bit, I'm sorry, but thinking about how advanced people must have been back at this time, 41 to 42,000 years ago, I just want to you know, stop for a moment and think about the native people of Australia, uh, the Aborigine people, because they are, of course, Homo sapiens as well, but... Interestingly enough, Australia was, you know, at this time period, uh, not connected to the mainland. So basically, how did they get there? They didn't swim. They didn't fly. That basically meant that the Homo sapiens, at this time when they got to Australia, I think it's about forty or 50,000 years ago, people started coming to, to Australia. That means that they were able to build quite sophisticated boats. Most likely, just think about that, because just in the, still talking about how these people were not this silly kind of cavemen, you know, how much would it actually take for you to build a boat that could carry you over quite, quite vast distances of of water? I just generally think that we have this tendency to completely underestimate the people that have lived before us, but that's another thing. So basically, now I think we've talked a little bit about humans up until this time period that we're talking about, this area of the geomagnetic excursion, the Le Champs excursion. We've reached this time period. We're about 41,000 years ago, probably 41,500 years ago. So we are at these situations. Humans, they are really well evolved. We have Neanderthals, you know, very much alive in, especially Europe and Asia. And we have these Denisovans also, a little bit more in the sort of Asian region. And basically we have, this is basically where we are when we start having this magnetic chaos. To quote a researcher of one of the most important recent studies he says quote it probably would have seemed like the end of days said professor chris turney of the university of new south wales now there are discussions about how much of a sort of sudden thing this is and not but we will see so what people think happens when it comes to these electromagnetic or geomagnetic sorry excursions is that Something that is surrounding our Earth is electromagnetic fields. And that these fields are weakened by this excursion. So basically what that means is that when our planet goes, you know, gets really confused and can't sort of figure out where north is and where south is and just gets, everything is everywhere. The natural electromagnetic field that surrounds planet Earth is basically more or less vanishing. And why this is important is because it protects us from a lot of radiation and particles coming from outer space. Actually, they think that during this time period, during this Lachance event, the protection from this natural electromagnetic field might have only been about 4% of today's strength and you know this planet has just been completely confused and the protection shield against these sort of bombardments from outer space it's it's not working and then you get this all strange strange things like the northern lights that they're a realis you know probably saying them on photos if, if if nothing else you know really nice greenish lights that you can see in the skies far up north they are all of a sudden coming all different places to quote one scientist quote the geomagnetic tilt was significantly skewed from the geographic poles this led a rural precipitation to follow the magnetic poles and relocate from the geographic polar regions of earth to equatorward latitudes and you know i'm really sorry for this scientist because i'm going to mangle your name, but it's Agnet Mukupadhuyai of University of Michigan. Yeah, you can just hear that that was the wrong pronunciation. But anyway, it gives you a good sort of view of this kind of chaos that's going on. The poles are shifting. The, The planet Earth doesn't know where the northern lights are supposed to go, more or less. And when this electromagnetic field is weakened, you know. That means the sun is going to start biting much, much harder. It's it's going to mean that the protection you get from 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 UV rays and and and, and other sort of things is not that strong. And, it, and you know, I know this is debated. Some say it has a lot to say. Some say you know, it might not be that important. Uh, and, and so forth. But one of these recent studies that really sparked international debate around this it goes quite far to suggest that the radiation that human beings were being exposed to during this Le Champs excursion was really severe and had really, really huge impact on life. They even go so far that to suggest that you have this red ochre paint um, you might see this in the sort of caves that you have used this as a sunscreen, and also that caves are much more actively being started to be used as as homes for human, human beings at this time period just because they needed to flee from the from the dangerous uh, sun and of course, having said what we have already said about the Neanderthals and the big you know question to to why they disappeared well you know if they had a bit lighter skin didn't take the sun as well as the homo sapiens maybe you have an explanation right there right so it's probably not one or the other but it's a quite interesting thought that this phenomenon might have played a role when it comes to the extinction of neanderthals after all, humans, unlike most other animals, don't have much fur. And if the Neanderthals also didn't take the sun as well as the Homo sapiens, you know, it might be, you know, one explanation out of many. I'll actually quote a little bit from the study. It's a quite long quote, just so you know. And in the study, they're calling this the Adams event. And they're basically just meaning uh, the environmental event that followed the, the Le Champs. Uh, uh, excursion so here you go quote the implications of this study are considerable for instance the adams event is very close in timing to the globally widespread appearance and increase in figurative cave art red ochre handprints and changing use of caves this sudden behavioural shift in very different parts of the world is consistent with an increasing or changed use of caves during the ADAMS event, potentially as shelter from the increase of ultraviolet B, potentially to harmful levels during GSM or ACPs, which might also explain an increased use of red ochre sunscreen, end quote. So just they're using a bit of scientific sort of... Lingo here. You can look up the study yourself if you like, but it's quite interesting that they think that red ochre was actually sunscreen that they used that to protect themselves. Um, and let's go on a little bit more. Quote. Rather than the actual advent of figurative art, early cave art would therefore appear to represent the preservation of pre-existing behaviours on a new medium. End quote. So basically they are saying that, you know, a lot of the reason why people are painting inside of caves is because they can't go outside. And that caves were this new sort of medium. It goes on, quotes. Other important archaeological boundaries during the Wider Lachamps include the extinction of the Neanderthals. And quotes. There are also sort of other things that are disappearing at this time period. Some other sort of cultures and and some parts of megafauna. Uh, so I mean, some of these things have gotten criticism as well, but it's really really interesting to see that they are so directly connecting the environmental shifts caused by the Le Champs excursion to the extinction of the Neanderthals. It's super fascinating. I'll just quote a little bit more, quote, The Adams event appears to represent a major climactic, environmental and archaeological boundary that has previously gone largely unrecognized, end quote. So just this is just really really fascinating isn't it There's sort of so many potential parts of a puzzle that is you know falling into place with this and you know we don't know for sure these are hypotheses i would say but what we do know is that we are getting a lot of more insights into what happened during this Le Champs effect um, and it wasn't, you know, over by night. It lasted for about 800 years. And we obviously don't know how much it affected daily lives. Maybe it made everybody go into caves. Maybe everybody had to use some sort of red ochre sunscreen kind of thing. Maybe it shifted um, the way humans behaved. Maybe we're during this time hunted mostly by night, that will affect what sort of animals we were hunting. Did many other animals die out? We don't know. And that has been some of the criticism, by the way, that we can't, you know, directly say that other sort of animals uh, have died out, that there is a link with, between mass extinction and and this phenomenon. We don't know, to be honest. But then again, you know, it's kind of simpler to to understand if uh, Neanderthals with a bright skin, not so many other Neanderthals to mate with, um, would sort of feel this as a contributing factor to them, you know, finally disappearing. If they have disappeared, if we can even say that, because as we, as we said, we're all a little bit Neanderthal. So it's likely complex, likely many different different. Explanations to this. Anyways, this is a, a really, really hot potato, I'd say, and I know we'll get more info when it comes to the extinction of the Neanderthals and and also this specific event that we call the Shops. And there are also other things. I mean, it's interesting to see, I mean, what else would change What would change? You know, so what? The magnetic poles switch, okay, fine. The sun gets intense, okay, fine. But, you know, what else would be different? I mean, had it happened today, how would it affect our lives? It's really hard to tell, really, isn't it? But... You might think that some other animals would suffer. There are some studies previously that have suggested that grey whale beachings become much more common when you have uh, those kind of disturbances uh, coming into play because they use magneto reception to navigate. So, you know, if the planet gets super confused about what's north and south, so does, you know, the rest of the the rest of the world that uses this magnetism to work. I think there's a really, really good quote about this. It's, uh, it's from a different scientist that was not associated with this first study. It's, uh, uh, her name is Dr. Agatha Lisa Provenos of the University of Melbourne. She says these quotes. During the geomagnetic excursion, the strength of the Earth's magnetic field almost vanished. This would lead to a big increase in cosmic and solar particles bombarding our planet because the magnetic field normally acts like a shield. We don't know when the next geomagnetic excursion will happen, but if one was to occur today... Satellites would be rendered useless, smartphone navigation apps would fail, and there would be major disruptions of power distribution systems, end quote. So that's quite mind-blowing, isn't it? And it's also kind of put things into a little bit of perspective, because it just comes to show that we basically are completely dependent on The planet that we live on and how it behaves obviously for us to to live our lives and also what is a little bit uh, interesting to think about is that we know that this is a recurring event but we have no idea when the next one is going to be the last time we had a complete magnetic reversal like north becoming south and vice versa is 770,000 years ago So that's not taking into account the Le Champs excursion. An excursion like this is more a little bit like, you know, the the earth losing its bearing a little bit and the the north and the south wandering about before they find their place again, you know, in the top and the bottom. Um, But there are also going to be full reversals every now and then. And regarding these full reversals, There has been about 183 of uh, of them over the last 83 million years that we know of. So that means that there will be one roughly every 450,000 years. And that means that we might be overdue for a new global magnetic reversal. But, you know, on the other hand also, the, these doesn't come regularly. I mean, they they, they do happen. We know there's going to happen, another one. But there's also been instances where there has been a pause for 10 million years. So there's not really any cause for concern, even though uh, certain scientists have, um, have been quite alarmed because the geomagnetic or electromagnetic shield around the, the planet Earth has been weakened quite dramatically. However, there are new studies coming all the time and there's a very recent one saying that there's no chance basically for a new reversal anytime soon. The bottom line is that there is still so much to explore when it comes to both these geomagnetic shifts and also just human history in general when it comes to this time period. Like I said, when it comes to the area before writing, we are basically in the dark, but new scientific methods are continuously giving us new insights into how people lived. And I think if there's something that we can be really certain about, it is that people, even though they lived 10, 20, 30 40,000 years ago were not as primitive as we sometimes tend to think. We know that evolution does not happen that quickly. 40,000 years in a perspective of evolution is not much. So when we're talking about this time period we have to remember that these are thinking human beings just like us. They will have had emotions, they would have felt hate, anger, love, compassion. So just try to imagine how it must have felt like to be alive when the earth starts changing for no apparent reason. Just like that. What is clear though is that this is an area that we are rapidly learning more about. So there will be much, much more discoveries to come so just continue to watch this space. I'm speaking to you tonight. A very serious business. Do not trust Mr. Do not hesitate. But he'll never surrender. Thanks again so much for listening. This is a joy to be doing and I'm so happy that so many of you seem to, to like the work. So please just continue to, to give your feedback. If you have any, you can find me on social media if you search for Game Changing History um you can also ch- search for my name my name is francis lundz and you'll find me somehow i suppose at least some of you tend to do that so i'm really grateful for all your feedback and um yeah just please keep it coming the next uh, episodes will be uh, about something very very different but we'll get back to that in due time cheers